Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and I'm joined today by Megan Box. How are you doing, Megan? Good, thanks, John. Excellent. And Julia, for sure. How are you doing, Julia? Good, John. Again, you're here. Is, it, is this the third week in a third row? Third week in a row. Third I think, week in yeah. a row. Good work. Um, so, this week is the peak of the summer results season. I think next week we have something like 23 pages of results in the magazine. So I know you are all uh, very, very busy on the company's team. So we will keep this as uh, as laser focused as we possibly can. Let's, uh, in fact, though, start with the news uh, and the news section itself. Julia, Ryanair, what's happening there? As, as, as everyone jets off to their summer holidays, this is a, a very appropriate story. Uh, and for many people, their summer holidays have been a bit of a nightmare. It certainly has, yeah. The uh, French air traffic controller strikes uh, in France are just causing endless problems for these for these airlines flying through. And Ryanair was the latest one to update the market with how much they've been hit. And so profits for the quarter are down about by about a fifth because of this. And for them... Uh, I mean, last week on the podcast, we spoke about EasyJet, and although they'd kind of taken a like exceptional cost hit from these strikes, they still managed to upgrade profit expectations for the full year. But the kind of the difference with Ryanair and some of these other airlines, where this is kind of an exceptional cost and it's quite temporary, is they're also dealing with strikes with their own staff as well, mainly up in Ireland. So that's kind of why Ryanair has been dealing with the situation kind of particularly badly compared to some of its peers. Right. So it's kind of a jumble of problems that that really means it can't actually focus its attention on Mm. on solving them anywhere. Yeah, Um, exactly. So... I mean, I think uh, we have Ryanair on hold, so we're looking past some of this uh, this disruption. We do, yeah. While while there is major disruption, they are making progress. So at the end of last year, they've started recognising unions for some of their crew, which mm-hmm. the pilots had been demanding for quite some time. And Michael O'Leary in the past has been very vocal about his dislike for unions, but finally the company has begun to begun to recognise them. So now at uh, as of now, I think about 66% of its staff is now represented by a union, which so, is quite fairly substantial since they only started at the end of last year. It, it is chunky. I mean, generally speaking, the job of a union is obviously to protect its staff from unfair working practices, but but also to make sure that its staff uh, get the best pay deal. So does the fact that Ryanair is now um, having to deal with unions suggest that they could be facing cost increases? Oh, they already have over the period. That was one of the biggest cost increases was the fact that they're having to pay their pilots more as well. But one of the also big uh, announcements that just came out this week having to do with their staff is that they're going to cut the number of uh, planes based in Dublin by about a fifth, down from about 30 to about like 23 or 24. And they're going to, because one of the main areas for the strikes was in Dublin, the mm-hmm. Irish pilots, pilots were not pleased with their working conditions and so now they've they've announced that from this winter they're going to substantially cut the number of planes they're going to have base there and move them to what they feel are more profitable routes instead. They see a lot of opportunity, especially in Poland, they say. Yeah, indeed. I, I actually didn't know about this airline, Ryanair's Sun, which you mentioned here. Just the branding for the Polish division, really. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know they had a separate division, uh, which is strange because we fly to Poland. But there you go. Um, another airline that is doing well which is also significantly focused on Poland is Wiz that's right um, and they've had some numbers this week that looked okay they are they have still had to cancel a number of flights but since they're just a much smaller scale airline than something like a Ryanair or an EasyJet where both of them because of the French strikes had to cancel upwards of 2,000 each Wiz Air had to cancel 145 of theirs which is expected to wipe about 14% off profits. Okay, so not that great then. Not great, but smaller scale than than some of the others. But yeah, they certainly haven't been immune to these. 
What, what have you on Wiz as a as a an investable share? We have them on a buy tip right now, so we think there's very good prospects for that. They've managed to increase capacity quite substantially over the past couple of years, but not at the expense of load factor, being how full the planes are. So yeah. they keep adding capacity and they keep filling the seats. So and and I think one of the points you make in terms of differentiation between Ryanair's investment case and EasyJet and Wizz Air is that the latter, EasyJet and Wizz, have in our opinion, in your opinion, made much better preparations for uh, what might happen with Brexit. That's a key thing as well. They both have, uh, because Wizz Air is based in Eastern Europe, EasyJet's based in the UK, uh, they've both got the kind of respective air operator certificates that they'll need. So uh, Wizz Air got one for the UK. They have a base in Luton now. Uh, EasyJet got one in Austria. So they're all set. No matter what the outcome of Brexit is, they should be fine because the issue is that there's no like WTO aviation deal to fall back on like some of the other sectors would have whereas Ryanair in the past they've been very vocal that they're very anti-Brexit and pushing the government to come up with an aviation deal or else they'll have to cancel a bunch of flights they wouldn't be able to fly quite a few of them but then in the update earlier this week they've announced they've applied for an air operator certificate but because a certain proportion of the shares have to be based in the EU they said that they might be forced to restrict the voting rights on some of these UK shareholders, which I can't imagine will go down very well with no, shareholders. No, that, that won't go down well at all, but there you go. So not our favourite pick in the sector. No, um, I suppose it means the planes can still fly, then it's something that they're just going to have to do. That's true. And the one thing that would worry me slightly if I were whiz would be uh, that Ryanair are, are essentially coming to have a, a crack at their patch. Yeah. Uh, is that is that a genuine threat for whiz, that you know, Ryanair shifting its focus to, to Eastern Europe? Um, I mean, there's no way it couldn't be a focus, but I think that Wizz Air is, they know the Central Eastern, Central and Eastern European market so well that I think they kind of have that sort of home turf advantage. Okay. I've never flown with them, funnily enough. We'll try it one day. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I mean, Easy, EasyJet's an interesting company that was formerly run by Carolyn McCall, which is a very nice segue into results section uh, this week because we had some results from ITV, which were very good. They were very good. Um, and yet the shares continue to languish at a very lowly rating. Yeah. I just don't really understand why they are. Well, I do understand why they are. People are overlooking the fact that they are... Uh producer as well as a broadcaster and they're just looking at the the broadcasting operations advertising used to anyway rely heavily on advertising and obviously the wider market is in a state of decline because of things like facebook and google but itv isn't reliant on its advertising anymore it's less than half of its revenues and it's got this amazing production company which makes programs which aren't just shown on ITV. It's it's the biggest content producer in the uk which is enormous Mm. and bigger than the bbc Apparently, yeah. Although I'm not sure what you take from commercial. So they're the biggest commercial content okay. producer, but the BBC does have a commercial arm as well. So it's bigger than that. Oh, that's true. I mean, the BBC will definitely package up its dramas and flog them uh, off. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, is, after it sells a... them. Yeah, and not just its dramas. It sells like, Top Gear all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I, I think it's very interesting as a, a kind of corporate uh, management story here. And, and and we were chatting yesterday over a beer after a long press day. And I mean, the, the management here is really important. So yeah. uh, so the reason I mentioned Carolyn McCall, obviously, she's now the new chief exec of ITV. We thought she did a great job at EasyJet. We thought she did a great job before that at The Guardian. Yeah. And and she really is a, a manager who's proved her sort. Yeah. Um, building on a great legacy from Adam Archie Crozier. Norman and yeah. Adam Crozier. I mean, it did, from what you've written, it doesn't sound like she's reinventing the wheel here, but it's a kind of, she's made that strategy her yeah. own. A strategic refresh is what she calls it. But it's very, it's a sensible strategy. It sounds very good, but 
like you say, it's not only that she need, she didn't necessarily need to have a new strategy. The strategy was already in place. But she's come into a company which has been languishing for a few years in terms of its share price. And she's just a fresh pair of hands on the wheel. And it was it was the right thing to do, to stamp her mark on the company. And she is so impressive when she speaks and when she speaks about the the strategy and, and the growth and where the growth is coming from. She she's She's great. And it sounds like the right thing to do in that they're going to focus a lot more heavily on the production side of things. They're going to try and launch, and there aren't very many details about it at the moment, but they're calling it a direct-to-consumer platform, which sounds like it's going to be some sort of streaming service based around what is currently the ITV hub, which has a lot of subscribers it's got i think 75 percent of the uk's 16 to 24 year olds this is this is their digital catch-up player yeah it's not great it's it's better than it was yeah but it, I, it, it te- technologically it's not great no, That's, when but if you look at bbc iplayer how how far it's come in the last six months bbc iplayer was barely usable before and they've clearly done some massive digital revamp there and now it's very good and itv hub is not great but but room for improvement. Yeah, and, and and they're focusing on it, and they're speaking to potential partners. I don't know whether those partners are other broadcasters who they'll share content, or whether it's a tech platform. I, I really don't know, but whatever. Regardless, it's it sounds like the right idea. Yeah. Interestingly, though, they did have a question on the media call, which was how many of these streaming services are people willing to pay for, which is a really good point because for me right now all of them yeah and that's what that's what she said she was like we and our family have this is Karen McCool we have Amazon Music and Spotify and loads of households do and we have Netflix and Amazon Prime and if ITV Hub went behind a paywall probably get that too yeah what have you got what have you, all of them I've got Netflix, and then for music, I use Apple Music. Okay, I don't. I don't have a music streaming no, service do because I. I've got too many CDs, so I don't need it. But I have, yeah, Netflix, Amazon, and what's the other one? Uh, the Sky one, Now TV, Now TV, which yeah. I quite like. So I mean, it is interesting potentially going head to head with Netflix here. Netflix, I mean, let's let's move to Netflix. There's so much to talk about this week. Netflix has some numbers this week which weren't great. They were pretty bad. Well. Yeah, they were bad compared to their expectations, and that's why the share price fell so much, because everyone thinks Netflix is going to just keep growing and keep attracting a population the size of the UK in every quarter. I, m- I remember you said you told me what the numbers were, what they were expecting, what they actually got. What they got is huge. What 500 expect- million is what they got. They were expecting <laughs> 600 million. 500 million more subscribers. Yeah. I mean, it's just extraordinary numbers yeah. we're talking about here. Yeah. But the expectations were... For perfection, six hundred, mm. and and the shares got hit quite heavily. Yeah, fourteen percent on uh, on the day, which yeah, it's a big move for a company that size. And and we saw this week as well in the tech space. So we had some good numbers from uh, from Google. Yeah, uh, Alphabet, even. yeah, which was surprising. They were particularly good because they had this massive fine earlier in the month, which obviously didn't affect these numbers, but they thought that Google might have to temper its earnings guidance for the year because of that fine. But they've made so many cost savings that they've actually come in ahead of earnings, even though they've been fined 4.3 billion euros. It's extraordinary. We've got figures from Amazon and Apple coming out later today. Yeah, Apple's next week. Oh, next week, sorry. Obviously, we can't talk about those. Um, But the share price of those companies have been flying. In fact, all the fangs, apart from Netflix. And this morning, Facebook, Mm. which took a bit of a beating. What what happened there? So they had results as well, which were... Actually, they were quite poor. Their revenue growth was average i think it was about 11 percent, but they're not subscriber numbers in the u.s were flat subscriber numbers in europe were down which doesn't only mean that people aren't subscribing it means 
they are cancelling their accounts. That's not a good sign. And there was growth everywhere else apart from Europe and the US. But to what extent are they cancelling? I mean, is... Oh, it's not very big, but, I mean, it's not a good sign. No, no, but it's a huge company. I mean, you you talk about a 20% price, well, they're wiping 140 billion from the value of that company. It's vast. Mm. Um, but But I think the point here is that, you know, Netflix essentially missing... It's numbers, very high expectations, achieving an incredible level of growth, but still seeing its shares suffer. You know, are these tech stocks priced for perfection? Mm. Um, one misstep, as I concluded my editorial, and they're going to get punished, which seems to be what's happened. And, and my great worry, this is, a, this is another great segue here, Fever Tree Drinks might be occupying the same category of uh, expectations. And they've had some results this week. They have, yeah. They definitely, I would say they're certainly in that category as well, but they have yet to falter, I would say. Mm. But yeah, the results this week, were they were very good. It was for it was interims this week. And the big focus right now is this shift to the US. They, Alongside the results announcement, they announced that they'd signed a deal with uh, Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits, which are the largest North American distributor for alcohol. Okay. And so they're kind of going to work alongside them. They operate in 29 states. And the chief executive was saying, Tim Warilla was saying that they're kind of like the 29 key states where people, because you kind of get a few more conservative ones where people aren't really drinking very much. So yeah. they don't really care about those. But yeah, no, they, uh, so this is going to be huge. They're going to allow them to run uh, national campaigns alongside. So they'll be like the exclusive partner with this distributor. So that's a great way to work in there. They, uh, it was towards the end of last year they announced that a dedicated management team would be set up in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So that's all now fully established and ready to go. And one of the, I think one of the key concerns right now is that it's still a bit expensive to. They manufacture all of the tonic and all of the drinks in the U.K. and then they then have to ship them over to North America. So that can be a bit expensive. But they said. Not necessarily in the immediate term, but not too far away, they'd be looking at building a distribution and manufacturing site somewhere in the US, likely on the East Coast somewhere. So that could cut down those costs right now. Okay. I mean, it is interesting. I didn't know the uh, the Americans were into their gin and tonics that, uh, that much, but obviously we know that Fever Tree does more than... More than just tonic now. That's right, yeah. But, uh, but there you go. Maybe they like uh, maybe they like the quirky Britishness of uh, of the old G and T. Say it's still a po- like a very popular drink in North America. Is maybe it? not as popular as it is here, but it's definitely common. Everyone's gin crazy over here. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, this is a business that, that ultimately still is doing the vast majority of its business in the UK. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the UK is still. The by far their largest market, I think making up about three quarters worth of sales at this point. Yeah, some, something like that. the US is um, closer to 15. So still got lots of room to grow. So that's why S- I... Saying that the UK is gin crazy, is there not an argument to say that Fever Tree has helped make the UK gin crazy? Oh, the chicken and egg discussion yeah. here. Well, I don't know. A couple of years ago, you couldn't go into a pub without there being a Fever Tree menu. And they were glossy menus, which they were distributing free to pubs all over the UK, but not necessarily pubs that even stocked their their stuff. But you you make people interested in gin if there is a nice menu which gives you all the things that you can have with your gin. And And Fever Tree helped helped their on trade distributors the pubs basically and bars do that. Yeah. Saying. So 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 clever marketing, they could go over to America and do basically similar. do something similar, convince America to, to become as gene crazy yeah, as we create are. create your own market. That's, that's they've done a very good job at doing that. 
So, so, so I guess this is why. I mean, people look at these shares and this company, and it is, you know, it's great. I can't, you can't, you can't fault it, and that's that's kind of where where we are and why the shares are where they are. But they are very, very expensive. I think yeah. forward P of seventy eight at the time that we wrote the results. So, it's yeah, it's it's still it's kind of a tough argument. There's we've been saying this for a really long time that there's so much growth, there's so much opportunity, but are they too expensive to justify an entry point? And we've been saying this for a very long time, and the shares continue to do extremely well. There, there have, they, over the years, there have been some companies that that, uh, that remind me of this story. Asos is one of them we were talking about earlier. You know, you always looked at those shares, oh, you know, what a what a rating! But they just like, up and up and up. You Amazon. say same true of Amazon. What's that? What's that trading on now? Two hundred and fifty times. Bargain. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you just. My worry is though that you know when. You, with some, an undertaking as big as trying to crack the US. And, and Fevertree is ultimately a relatively small company in that industry still. It needs perfect execution to justify that share price. It does, but I mean, looking at their track record, they don't really have any, any black marks on the record. So mm. it's certainly a difficult task, but when you think about how much opportunity there is in the US market to grow, then if they do it well, it could be really dramatically excellent for the company. Sounds to me like you need to get off the fence there, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people are willing to pay 78 times forward earnings, I think there's still lots of room for growth. Yeah, I think, I mean, this company has a lot of fans. Uh, you know, it's one that I see often people talking about on Twitter. The, which company will get to 40 quid a share first? Uh, Fever Tree or, I think it's Games Workshop, the other one that uh, that, that they have in that little game. The, actually, the, share, the shares in the, uh, the price here in the magazine is 3671. There was a weird spike in the shares on the day we looked at it. Because we've got a 12 month high here of nearly 40 quid. Yeah, nearly getting what to the 40 quid mark. That's really weird, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just kind of an interday shot up and then came back down again. But. Yeah, I have no idea what happened there. We need to we need to have another look at that. Um, okay, fever tree. So you say hold, but really, I think you sort of mean buy if you're uh, if you're brave. <laughs> um, same page. Uh, let's go back to the management theme uh, and, and and delivering on strategy. GSK. This is a very strange story. Yeah. What is going on here? Something new, apparently. They have decided it's time for a strategic revamp, and now they're focusing on science and R&D, and specifically genetics. So this is really strange in the context of management. Again, we were discussing this when we were discussing uh, Carolyn McCall yesterday. GSK brought in uh, Emma Wormsley, am I pronouncing that correctly? And she had a consumer goods marketing background. Yeah, she was the head of the consumer health division of GSK. So the assumption was that here, this company would now be going down the consumer healthcare yeah. route rather than the big science route that AstraZeneca has yeah. chosen to go down. And everyone thought that was a grand strategy and she was the right person to lead it. When you say everyone thought it was a grand strategy... Some people thought it was. <laughs> few people, most people thought it was a, the wrong strategy, but the old chief executive, Andrew Whitty, was convinced it was the right strategy, as was the chairman. And clearly now they have decided... Mm, maybe those two men were wrong and we need a new strategy. But then they've employed someone who was employed to pursue the old strategy. So whether Emma Wormsley is the right person to pursue the science strategy, I don't know. I, I don't think so. This sounds like it could get a bit messy. Yeah, I, I don't find her particularly good. I think she's been, she's been there for too long. She just She's just been dragging her feet and not really doing anything. Don't pull, it, don't pull your punches, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's not but Karen, Karen McCall. She's employed these 
well, she, the people are saying, oh, she's made some really good roles in, in R&D. But she had to because everyone left. Their old head of R&D left. He went to work for the government. Um, someone else was poached by AstraZeneca. Yeah, they've poached someone else back by Ast- from, from AstraZeneca. But there's been so much change in management. They're losing their FD. Um, so it's kind of a brain drain situation from the side of things. Yeah. Are they, I mean, they, but that, that takes back to, to like Tesco. I remember when Tesco had their big management change after Terry Lee. Lots of Someone got the job. Yeah. Philip Clark. But everyone else left because <laughs> yeah. they didn't get the job. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it is probably what happened with the finance director. He was probably felt like he was overlooked and he's he's gone. But yeah, they have got some good people in the R&D team now. Someone called Hal Barron is now the head of R&D and he's, he's got a good track record. But how, how can you have a chief executive who's overseeing that whole strategy, whose background is not in science at all? The chief executive of AstraZeneca is a scientist. He's a businessman as well, but he... He's a scientist at heart. Shire's chief executive is a scientist. Mm. If you're going to be running a, a science-focused pharmaceutical company, then I think you need a scientist at the top of it. Yeah, I, I think that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I mean what, this mess, and, I, and to me it does look like a mess. Yeah. Um, you know, it, kind of the buck you, you would think stops with the chairman here. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I think he's not great. But, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like the chairman either. <laughs> I don't love GSK, but I do think it's being overlooked. And I think the new strategy is the right one, whether there are the right people in place to actually execute it. But I think changing the strategy was the right thing to do. And now they are, they look like they're heading in the right direction. And uh, yeah, they were, they were decent results, although they had some bad news today, actually, from a, one of their drugs. It didn't get approved. And... It's all about the drug approvals. Yeah, we got I and mean, we got the shares on a buy. Yeah. So after all the, all those faces and and, uh, and character assassinations, there buy. <laughs> it's a begrudging buy. I <laughs> <laughs> I personally am not a fan, but looking at it from an objective point of view, they are quite cheap considering they have a good dividend, which is now well covered. Their debt is very high at the moment, but that's only because they bought the rest of Novartis's consumer healthcare division. That's the other part of this strategy, which is crazy. This time, six months ago, they were considering, and they'd actually made a bid for Pfizer's consumer healthcare business, which might have been $20 billion. And they then bought Novartis out of the rest of their consumer healthcare joint venture. It cost them, I think it was about £15 billion. And, and their net debt's now very high because of that. Why, why were they doing that if it's all about the R&D? Yeah. I, if, yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's all, all very uh, very good questions, which mm. I think I'm sure you'll put to uh, management at some point. In yeah, the and I did actually speak to someone really good who is he's got a big holding in GSK, and he he really likes the strategy. So the new yeah. one. No, the this new- was actually before they changed the strategy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this we'll is not see. this is not clarity of strategy. This no, is this is not. the opposite of what we're seeing at ITV. Yeah, um, completely. I know which one. I know which one uh, whose shares I would rather buy. Yeah, I, I th- ITV is great. And it's cheap. Yeah, absolutely. Fun enough, GSK pops out of a few of the uh, screens in uh, the cover feature that you've written this week, Julia. That's right. Yeah, pharmaceutical companies can be a bit of a, a tricky one when it comes to corporate debt, which is what the corporate debt is what the feature focus is all about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a great feature. It's quite it's quite long. So, I mean, let's just give it a bit of a plug. And I, I think it's best that readers go off and have a, have a read themselves. But what we're trying to do here is really get to the bottom of how you as an investor should look at the debts that, that companies have. Um, so, I mean, you know, summarise sort of, what's the, should we be scared of debt? Absolutely not, no. And uh, But 
as the the feature kicks off with uh, UK or debt among UK listed companies is currently the highest it's ever been, and so that might sound like it should be bad news, especially because kind of ahead of the last financial crisis it kind of spiked as well. But it's just as the feature goes into a lot of detail, the profile of this corporate debt is much different than it was this time ten years ago. So kind of more of a focus on long term debt rather than short term debt. So. If the Bank of England does indeed increasing interest rates, as they've been, there's been a bit of murmur about, it wouldn't be such bad news as it was, or as it would have been if the focus had been on much more short-term debt, which is much more exposed. Beyond that, we look at uh, how this is broken down within different sectors, which sectors can deal with quite high levels of debt, which ones can't, and why, and name some specific companies and examples. And then so what are your sex is that's the uh, that's the uh, the key offender. It is. It? Should I give it away? Or yeah, go on, no, no, no. It? You can tell us that. <laughs> yeah, consumer goods uh, companies tend to be the highest. British American Tobacco right now is the most highly indebted company that's listed in London, and that's largely because they took on quite a lot of debt to buy Reynolds America last year, and they have results out today which are good. So, arguably, taking on that much debt was worth it. They also did a share of issuance at the time as well. But it's these consumer goods companies that tend to have fairly steady streams of cash flow. And so that cash flow can then be used to service the payments on that debt. So that makes it much less risky than, say, a pharmaceutical company where, as Megan said before, it's all about the drug approvals. And yeah. it's so hard to tell whether or not those are going to come through. So they perhaps can't take on quite as much. But big pharma companies do like a nice bit of debt, don't they? Yeah, well, they need it because... Otherwise, they can't afford to invest in their drug discovery. Invest in their drug discovery or pay their dividends? Yeah, we are well, <laughs> mainly pay their dividends at the moment. I mean, this, this, is, GSK. this is one of the reasons we've looked at this, because there is a question. It came up in the income age speech that we did recently that, that companies may be borrowing to uh, flatter their dividends, flatter their financial performance, their share price performance through buybacks. Are we, should we be worried as, about the, the, the sheer amount of money that's being borrowed to spend on buybacks and, and pay dividends? Um, honestly, it dep- I think it depends what, sector you're, what type of sector you're looking at. I mean, doing sort of a leveraged recapitalization where you issue debt to buy back shares is not always necessarily a bad thing. It just depends on whether the company can actually service that debt. Debt's never a bad thing unless they can't keep up with it. Indeed, and I, I, I think you say in the feature, it's probably the, you know, one of the first ports of call beyond internal cash flows for a company looking to finance its business. Equity can be very expensive. It can. Um, tech companies don't like to borrow too much for, uh, well, for they, obvious reasons. They can't afford to borrow too much because they'd be given the most ridiculous interest rates. So any biotech or tech company which has debt, that is, if it's not making money yet, one of the early stage ones. I, I, think, the, I think the point you make in the future about tech companies and debt is that it, it's to do with the nature of their asset base. Yeah, they have such a high level of intangible assets that it's difficult to put. They clearly can put a solid number on that, but if something were to go wrong, they went into financial distress, it's kind of questionable whether... If they were to revalue that, if they, you know, can you really sell a brand name? Well, I think you can. You can. Yeah, it's yeah, software, software, technology, IP, know-how, intellectual property, and stuff. Yeah, it's and you definitely can't sell a concept which may or may not work in the future. If it doesn't work in the future, if that the value of that intangible asset turns out to be zero because your drug trial failed or your brand new microchip isn't working or you can't sell a strategy like world domination <laughs> amazon style well, there you go no it's a fascinating feature um as i say uh 
really helps us get to grips with with debt and how you should look at it. And Algie Hall and James Norrington have put together a couple of stock screens here, which look at company's debt profile and uh, in the case of Algie screen, some red flags you, you might want to look at when assessing company's uh, balance sheet strength. Um, anyway, thank you very much. And uh, got a second feature this week, which is about Mexico, which uh, Emma Power has written. Uh, I knew nothing about Mexico until I read this feature. Quite a difficult market to invest in, but potentially very interesting in light of what's going on in North America with Donald Trump and trade deals. Um, so thank you, Megan. And thank you, uh, Julia, for uh, for your contributions today. Um, what are you working on this week? What's, what's uh, What's first up on Mad Results Rush? Uh, I did Relics this morning, which feeds into the debt thing quite nicely. I had an interesting conversation with their chief financial officer about they they paid their for their share buybacks out of debt today, uh, this this half, and he explained that it was all fine, and by the second half they will be paying it out of cash. Excellent. What have you been working on today, Julia? I uh, did Diageo's results this morning. Oh, two billion pound uh, share buyback announced. And that's through cash flows, though, not through adding debt. And then after that, National Express, and then again, British American Tobacco. So, busy day. Yeah, no, the booze company seems to be doing well with the AGO, obviously. Marston's, I think, has some numbers this week. Uh, They did, yeah. Obviously, World Cup, good news for the pub groups. Yeah. And But for Marston's, it was a bit of a combination because for the taverns business, the... Uh, World Cup and the good weather have been quite good for them because a lot of the taverns have outdoor space as well and people like to go sit outside when it's sunny and watch the World Cup outside when it's sunny and but it was not so good news for some of their like destination and premium pubs because those tend to be quite food led rather than wet led. Yeah. And people apparently don't really aren't as inclined to uh, to drive and go eat somewhere. No, food food's looking and a bit... And they're watching the World Cup or the weather's nice, but they do really want a pint outside. Well, yeah, absolutely. I understand that entirely. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Thank you very much. So, uh, what else have we got in the magazine this week? We have Sector Focus on Spread Betting by uh, Emma Powell. Algie's done another sort of screen this week, uh, Contrarian Value, which uh, which is a pretty decent performing strategy over the years. Uh, all the usual um, funds and personal finance content, which they will talk about on their uh, podcast tomorrow, including a really uh, interesting article about platforms and what the FCA is looking at in regards to them. Lots of news section, lots in the comment uh, section, including a very controversial bearable this week. Lots of comments on the website. There you go. We are we are uh, open to all forms of uh, opinion on the Investors Chronicle. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Megan. Thank you, Julia. And uh, we'll be back again next week. See you later. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.